Would you pray with me, please? Gracious Father, we thank you. Lord, we praise your holy name. Father, we pray all glory will be to Christ, your Son. He is our King. Lord, teach us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And Father, we know, Lord, we know that in all things, you are teaching us to worship your Son. Lord, we pray, Father, that you will humble us to seek you and to love you. Lord, I pray that we will love you in spirit and in truth. We will worship you in spirit and in truth. So, Father, as we begin a new year, there are many resolutions, but, Father, our heart's desire and resolution is to glorify you in all that we say and do. Lord, as we look to your word, Father, we look to you. So, Lord, open our eyes to see the beauty of your word, and so that we might behold your glory once again. Father, fill your people with hope, comfort us with your Holy Spirit's presence, teach us in all things to trust in you. Lord, we thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we are back in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Let's turn to chapter 19. This chapter is as they say, a doozy. It is uh, one that we could spend a couple hours on at least. I uh, always feel inadequate to preach, uh, this morning especially so. We are only going to look at the first 12 verses, but um, I'm tempted to just look, just look at the first verse. <laughs> But let's read the first 12 verses together. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word? Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. 
Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray once more. Gracious Father, let us receive your word with thanksgiving. Father, illumine our hearts and minds to understand your word. Father, I pray that the congregation will hear a far better message than the one that I've prepared. Lord, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. Father, we thank you. This is your church. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to dive into this chapter and we'll see how far we get. But here in Matthew 19, we see Jesus speaking about key aspects of relationships. I heard this past week on the radio um, that website traffic on dating sites soars between Christmas and Valentine's Day. Why is that the case? People are looking for a fresh start. They're looking for a New Year's Eve date to bring in the new year with. But needless to say, you should not listen to the radio for relationship advice. But I want you to know this morning that Matthew 19 is not about relationships per se. It's not about dating. It's not about singleness or even marriage per se. But Jesus is teaching us about marriage. He's teaching us about divorce. He's teaching us about singleness. But more than that, he's teaching us, as he has been, about the kingdom. So, as we look at Matthew 19, let me remind us what we have learned in the first 18 chapters. Well, that would take a little long, but let me summarize in saying in the first 18 chapters, we learned the birth of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus. And over the past couple months, we've been looking at how the ministry of Jesus unfolds. We've read about his miracles, his healings, but mostly we have focused on his teaching and the coming kingdom. He has come to usher in the kingdom. The main purpose in Matthew, there's several themes, but the main purpose in Matthew is for the Jews, and that's why most of the time when I'm reading Matthew, I'm lost, because I don't know the culture and the context for a Jewish audience, but he's writing for the Jews, the Jewish audience, so they might know this Jesus is the Messiah who has come. He is the Redeemer who has come. He has fulfilled the Old Testament predictions. He has come in the line of David, and he is carrying out the purposes of the Father. But as we have witnessed over the past couple months, not all are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Redeemer of the Jews. Some say, we want to hear more. Some say, we don't want to hear more. We don't believe you. So there are many who are questioning, and particularly the Pharisees are questioning and critiquing Jesus' motives and his ministry at seemingly every turn. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 12. We are not going to have a whole lot of time to put this into context, but look with me at Matthew 25, verses 38 and 39. This is again Jesus teaching and the Pharisees rejecting. So Matthew 12, verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So here and elsewhere we can look at how the Pharisees were questioning, they were critiquing, they were setting traps, if you will, in order to um, for others to reject who he is. But we know, as believers in Christ, he is the Messiah. 
So let us begin in verse 1. This is the easiest verse of the chapter. That's why I wanted to just preach it. (laughs) Here in verse 1, Jesus transitions from one place to another. His ministry spanned over a large area. Again, he didn't travel by train, plane, and automobile. But he is going from various areas. And he wraps up his teaching in Galilee. And he moves on. And now he enters the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And as we read elsewhere in Matthew, as he travels, what happens? Large crowds follow. You know, some questioning, some critiquing, but many seeking, many following, many wanting to know the truth. And so that takes place in verse 2. Many large crowds follow him there. And what happens? As the crowds follow, Jesus, as we see in Matthew 9, he has compassion upon the crowds. He heals people. He heals here in verse 2. He heals those who come. We must remember the purpose of the healing was not for a show, but rather to confirm and to affirm Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He was sent from God himself. But as we see in verse 3, the Pharisees were not ready to leap to this conclusion. Repeatedly, the Pharisees Pharisees, um, were looking for ways to trap Jesus in his teaching. In Matthew 12, the Pharisees questioned Jesus' disciples for eating grain on the Sabbath. Matthew 15, the Pharisees and scribes were critiquing um, Jesus and the disciples for the way they they regarded the traditions and the ceremonies. Remember what he said to them in Matthew 15? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus, quote-unquote, put them in their place. He was sent from God. And the Pharisees misunderstood the law. They knew the law. They had the head knowledge. They knew at least some of the law. But they distorted the law for their own purposes. And they distorted the behavior of the disciples. And most importantly, as a whole... Not all, but as a whole, they rejected Jesus as their Redeemer. They were quick to to critique. That's the case here in verse 3. So, they come ready to reject Jesus and his teaching. And as they approach Jesus, this is the question they offer up as an ethical test case, if you will. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So Jesus doesn't give just a quick yes-no answer. Jesus knew what was at stake here, and we will get to that in just a few seconds. But here, in this question, when they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, Jesus enters into a tricky situation. Divorce is a result of the fall. It is the big D, not Dallas. But it is the big D in my opinion. As a uh, seminary professor said in counseling a couple, he said, it's the nuclear option. Let's take the nuclear option off the table. So divorce can have devastating effects, usually does, especially on children. While divorces are sought and bought with little rationale and no effort at reconciliation, Scripture teaches divorce is not to be taken lightly. Hebrews 13 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 
So before we dissect Jesus' view on divorce, let's see his view on marriage. He doesn't give them a quick yes-no answer. Instead, he takes them back to the beginning. You want to know my view on divorce? Let me tell you what God's plan was for marriage. And that's what he does in verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, have you not read? I mean, he just sense the tension in the in the conversation. Have you not read, talking to these religious um, Pharisees, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That verse is so important on so many different levels, especially in our culture today and time. God made man male. He made woman female. Period. But then he continues in saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is a beautiful thing. Amen, Nancy? She's looking forward to that day. Afterwards, you can ask her how many days. (laughs) But here, Jesus takes us back to Genesis, takes us back to the beginning. The Pharisees were supposedly experts in the law, so Jesus takes them to the law, takes them to the first book of the Torah, and he takes them to the writings of Moses because they hold Moses in high regard. So if they respect Moses, he says, if you listen to your prophet Moses, then you should listen to me. They should respect his teaching and authority. So Jesus affirms what God declared in the beginning of creation about marriage, and that is marriage is good. The beauty and design of manhood and womanhood is in verse 4. And here, as the Pharisees set the stage for a potential trap, Jesus uses this opportunity to reaffirm God's design for monogamous, lifelong, and heterosexual marriage. It's clear in both the Old and New Testament. And then in verses 5 and 6, we see the beauty, the design of marriage. Marriage was intended as a permanent union of a man and a woman. It was created to show unity, intimacy, and the beauty like no other relationship. So the first point, I don't think it's up there on the screen, but marriage is defined and should not be diminished. There's so much we could say about that, but it's defined and should not be diminished. We've already looked at Hebrews 13. Let's look at three other passages as we see marriage being a gift from God. In Ephesians, Paul, Ephesians 5, Paul compares the beauty of marriage to the relationship between Christ and the church. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The passage continues for several more verses outlining the beauty of marriage. The book of Proverbs in the 18th chapter says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Song of Solomon, a book that I haven't preached through for a reason, describes the beauty of marriage as the groom and bride prepare for their wedding. In chapter 2, the bride says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. So over and over again, Ephesians, Proverbs, Hebrews, um, Song of Solomon, we see the beauty of marriage. Marriage is a good thing. It is established by God, and it is for God. 
It is a gift to display God's glory through a unique covenantal relationship when one man is united to one woman. Marriage benefits both husband and wife, but its primary purpose is to exalt Jesus Christ. The ultimate purpose is upward. So many times in marriage we get strut, we get caught up in conflict and strife because our goal is to please or not please our spouse. So the goal is to glorify God, to display the love between Christ and his people. John Piper says this, he says, As we keep covenant with our spouse, serve them in love and give them grace, we tell the truth about God's covenant with us in Jesus Christ. We are witnesses as we live for Christ, but especially in our homes and in our marriages. But the Pharisees, they knew God created marriage, but they also knew Moses allowed for divorce. And so they're like, there's a tension here. Can you help us solve it? Can you resolve this tension? And so why is this tension here? The Pharisees are testing Jesus, but they're also trying to settle a debate among the religious rabbis. There's a slide, Stephen. I don't know if you can find it, that I uh, copied a page from the book. Or from a book. There it is. Oh, it's crooked, but hopefully you can read it. But there was some differences of opinion amongst two different schools of thought. There's the Shammai, and the way I think about it is the Shammai were more strict, um, and then the Hillel. Um, I had something that made me remind of the Hillel, but just lost it. But these were the two main schools of thought about divorce. And you can see here with amongst the Shammai and the Hillel, they're taking the same passage from Deuteronomy 24 and coming to different conclusions. This happens all the time within Christianity. One side is taking this passage, the other side is taking this passage, and they're coming to two different conclusions. And so the Shammai, as they're reading the word porneia, which is in Greek, which we get the word pornography from, they come to the conclusion that divorce can happen by immodest behavior or, and especially, sexual immorality. The Hillel school were much more lenient or liberal, look at it, and they said that divorce can happen in any instance where a wife did something displeasing to her husband. I was expecting those shocked looks, yes. One book I said, if supper was basically burned, that qualified. So that's pretty shocking. And so this is the two school of thoughts. And so down the next line, you see divorce for Panea or Pornea. Both schools of thought said required. The application of the standard for divorce and remarriage, men only in the Shammai school. In the Holai school, men only. So we're going to see what Jesus has to say about this in just a second. So this is the the background, if you will, as the question is asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So as we approach a text, we just kind of think, where did this question come from? So here is the background, these different schools of thought, and they're saying, Jesus, your turn. You tell us what is to take place. So Jesus quotes again from Genesis. They're quoting from Deuteronomy. He says, let's back up. We'll go to Genesis here. And he shows us the design of God, the beauty of biblical marriage. And the Pharisees are not satisfied. It's like the Pharisees. Maybe it'll come back. There we go. Um, It said, you did not hear the question. 
And so it's like a child asking his father a question, but doesn't like the answer. So the child asks another one. So in verse 7, the Pharisees are a little bit upset, and we we read their religious retort when they say, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So in other words, we hear you on Genesis. We hear this is the original design, but here we are now. Shammai say this, Hillel say this, what say you? So they want to hear God's, or Jesus who is God, his opinion. If divorce is bad and not part of God's good design, then why is it allowed? That's basically what they are saying. And we have to admit, you know, we give the Pharisees a hard time, but that's a fair and good question. I don't know their exact motives, but it's fair and deserves an answer. There's many ethical more questions that we try and answer based upon Scripture. Difficult questions like, is it ever okay to lie? Does the commandment to not murder prohibit killing in war? Are there times in which it is allowable to disobey civil governments? I'm not going to expand the sermon four times longer and answer those, but those are difficult questions. These are all difficult questions that take deliberate and careful interpretation as we search the scriptures and apply them. So Jesus says to them, as they're thinking about these different schools of thought, in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart. Ouch. Not seeking a friend right there. Not pleasing people. He says, because of your hardness of heart. He doesn't say the hardness of heart of those of old, but because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So before we move on, Jesus tells us that Moses did allow for a divorce. I'm not going to read it. I thought about it, but I encourage you to go to Deuteronomy 24 later, especially verses 1 through 4, and see what the regulations and requirements are there. So Jesus acknowledges that, But again, he's not dismissing God's original design. We understand divorce could take place, but the divorce does not describe God's, the divorce does not describe God's affirmation and celebration of divorce, but rather it describes the hardness of humanity's hearts. Moses understood. Jesus especially knew the hardness of our hearts. I won't describe this right now. I've got a lengthy part here. But there's an article on the board back there where Tim Geiger talks about the depravity of man and how great our sin is. We don't understand the depth of the goodness of God and the gospel until we see how great our sin is. And so Jesus knew how hard humanity's heart is. We must understand the nature of sin before we grasp the goodness of God and the gospel. That's why Ephesians 2 is so beautiful. I'm so thankful for Paul reading um, Romans 5. Now look at Ephesians 2 with me. Ephesians 2, it says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. So Jesus knows the hardness of our hearts. But yet he does 
affirm what Moses allows. But we must understand, and this is a key point, Jesus does not require divorce. He permits it. It's a big, big difference. He doesn't say, okay, you check that box, now walk on ahead to the divorce line. No, he permits it. Jesus affirms marriage, but he allows for divorce only under certain circumstances. And there's a lot we can say about that. So number two, divorce is described and not prescribed. Divorce is described and not prescribed. Verse 9, Jesus says, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus is not saying you can divorce for finding any fault. If she burns supper, or if you burn supper, say, I love it. Divorce is not to be taken lightly. Someone just wrote that down. (laughs) Sexual immorality and adultery, the reason why this is so important in verse verse 9, sexual immorality and adultery strike at the heart of the one flesh union between a man and a woman ordained by God. This is why this is such a big deal. It strikes at the heart of the one flesh union between a man and a woman ordained by God. So Jesus places a high standard on marriage because marriage reflects God's original purpose at creation. So yes, Jesus recognizes the laws given by Moses regarding divorce, but they do not replace God's original intent, but rather they recognize, again, the hardness of of our hearts. Marriage shows us that it's God's plan in creation and the will of God himself. So Jesus does give us this exception clause, if you will, in verse 9. There's a lot that has been said, a lot that has been written, and we really don't have time to get into all that this exception clause says and or means. But Jewish law required divorce in the case of sexual immorality. Jesus merely permitted it. This implies the need for forgiveness. So while forgiveness and reconciliation seems impossible in some situations, I have seen and I have heard God do amazing things in reconciling a man and a woman. When, the, when God says all things, or it is impossible with man, but not with God in salvation, that also means in sanctification. In following Christ, it's impossible on our own, but through God's power, reconciliation can take place. That's why we take the nuclear option off the table. So Jesus' standard here is not the same standard as the world. The world says, on your way to work, look at the billboard, call this number, and we can fix you up 24 hours so that you're now single. That's abominable. That is not what Jesus is saying here. His standard is so much higher than the other schools of thought. He is getting at, as he has been throughout Matthew, the heart of the matter. His standard is high. In Matthew 5, on multiple occasions, he tells us lust and extramarital affairs are wrong for both men and women. In the Old Testament, in that chart, standards for men were much more lenient. 
But here in the New Testament, Jesus sets the standard for men and women as the same. And that standard, that bar is high. Again, it must be stressed. I have this like three times in my notes. It must be stressed. Jesus' view of divorce was strict, but he only permitted divorce in the case of sexual immorality, whereas Judaism required it. Again, there's so much more that could be said about this, and I really wish I had more time to speak on this. So if you have questions, I encourage you to speak with me. But what I want us to do as we start to wrap up, four things are clear. God designed marriage for our good, number one. God designed marriage for our good. Number two, we live in a broken and sinful world and we fall short of God's design. We live in a broken and sinful world and we fall short of God's design. That was number two. Number three, divorce is a result of the fall. Sorry, it's not up. It's not on there, bud. Um, number three, divorce is a result of the fall. Number four, practically, and this is, this is the reality, and this is what makes this sermon so, so hard. Everyone has been affected by a divorce at one time or another. Ourselves, a family member, a friend, someone we're very close to. So that's what makes this extremely hard. So let me encourage you to ask me questions, to seek God's word, about this subject, as you seek, and here's the key, not for a loophole, but as you seek to worship God and to obey God. Let's turn quickly um, to the last few verses. The last few verses, and these are so important as well. Verse 10, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface on these verses. In verse 10, the disciples are shocked. This is one of those, those points, those conversations, you just wish you were there to see their faces. We were looking for the Hillel view of thought, and he gives us this. The disciples are shocked at Jesus' response. Their view was likely, according to commentators, much more lenient than Jesus' was. So as a result, they say to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. (laughs) Jesus is not dismayed by their drastic response. Again, he knows their hearts. So what does he say? Well, not everyone can receive my teaching, and that's probably you. No, that's it's me adding on to that. So now let's look at verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12, he says to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but to those to whom it is giving. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this Receive it. So Jesus points out there are different types of eunuchs. We won't get into all that, but all eunuchs should look upon their situation not as one of second rate, but one that is great in the eyes of God. Again, another passage I encourage you to read later is Isaiah 56, 1 through 5. So Jesus tells us those that are single do so for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. They are not second class. They are not second rate. They do so for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they have their eyes focused on the kingdom of heaven. And this is sad. I, I, just, I mean, I've experienced this or I've seen it and I've read about this. But sometimes even within the church, maybe, maybe more so within the church, singles are 
isolated or overlooked. But the third point here is singleness. Singleness is a gift that should not be dismissed. We must see singleness as an opportunity to seek the kingdom in a unique way. That's the point in verse 12, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's an opportunity to seek the kingdom in a unique way. We must see the vision of seeking the kingdom here, but also, even more so, in 1 Corinthians 7, as we seek the kingdom with passion. Those who are called to be single are able to show devotion in a unique way. Those who are called to be single are able to carry out God's mission, seeking to please the Lord. And they're able to use their most precious resource, time, in a unique, God-glorifying way. They are unrestricted in ways that married couples are. And so they're able to use their time in unique, God-glorifying ways. So much more could be said about these verses. But let me close in saying this. Whether you are single or married, you are called to seek the kingdom of heaven by being devoted to God's design and purpose for you in Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.